Well, today begins Holy Week, and I hope that, uh, that you have picked up the devotional that has been prepared uh, by uh, leaders, elders in our church for the church family, and uh, the first one is for Palm Sunday, and so hopefully you've uh, taken one of these out of, out of the, the bags that we've been distributing, and you'll be following along. You'll see that, uh, that each day is meant to help us reflect on where the Lord Jesus was on that day during Holy Week. And as, uh, as I think about Holy Week, I know that, uh, that it was a day or a week in which there was a lot of rejoicing, like we will see uh, in the account that we'll read today about Palm Sunday. But we know it was also a week in which there was also weeping, and there was, there was, there was fear, there was anxiety, and then it ends with celebration. And so, so we know that, that at times that is the experience that, that we also have in this life. And, and our Lord Jesus certainly, certainly can relate to that. In fact, I was having a conversation just before uh, the service started and, and just uh, talking with a young couple about how sometimes those, those times of rejoicing and weeping, can they sometimes even fall on the same day? You know, where they're just so close together where we're experiencing both emotions. And certainly as we think about the Holy Week, we know that that, that is, is what the Lord himself, he will have times in which he has great support and then there'll be times in which he's abandoned. There'll be times in which, which uh, people will be crying out to him for salvation and then there'll be other times in the week where they have deserted him. And maybe as we reflect upon our own week or maybe even among, among the, the, the world that's around us. Just think back over the last week and just think about some of the tragedies that we have heard about and that we have, that we have walked through together as a nation. And we, we recognize that we need the Lord Jesus Christ to give hope. And so I pray today that if, if you've walked into Holy Week and you've come to the Fellowship of Wildwood today, that today will be a day that you can, you can draw closer to the Lord, that you can find hope. Maybe it is a season of rejoicing for you. Maybe it's a season of weeping. And our, our Lord understands all of that and has a plan for this week, this holy week. As we uh, walk through it together, we will see it unfold. Now, for the message today, I want us to think about the identity of the Messiah because that is certainly something that took place on Palm Sunday. It was on Palm Sunday that Jesus came into Jerusalem for the final time, and he would, he would identify himself as the Messiah, and the people would recognize him as the Messiah. Now, as we will see, their, their view of what the Messiah would be doing was, was different than what his view would be, that, in the way in which the week would, would unfold. But nonetheless, it is a week in which the Messiah is identified. And we're going to also look a little later in the week. We're going to fast forward to Thursday because it's in the Passover meal when Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room having what is now known as the Last Supper, right? It's in that occasion that he continues to disclose why he came and what it means for him to be a Messiah for the world. So with that in mind, I invite your attention to John chapter 12. We're going to be there. We're also going to be in Mark 14 as we tie these pieces together, again, with the goal and the pursuit of trying to understand the identity of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And then we will end our time by receiving the Lord's Supper together. And so I hope that, uh, that you have done what I didn't do 
and that is pick up some elements. So uh, maybe someone can help me out. I, 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 I left, I, thank you, all right. I, I'll, I'll need this here in a little bit. <laughs> I hope there's enough for you, Trey. Maybe, maybe there's, there's still one there, thank you. But we will be using the elements, and uh, we'll, we'll be reflect. oh, oh, we, we got all, all kinds of them, all right, thank you. We've got, uh, we've got the elements that have been uh, laid out there for you. I hope that you've had a chance. You don't have to be a member of the church to participate in the Lord's Supper. We just ask that you be a, a follower of Jesus Christ, one who, who understands the significance of what this means. And I, I hope that as we walk through these verses, my goal is that it will set a tone for us to reflect on what these represent for us today. And so always a very special, special time uh, for us to share that together. Well, let's begin in John chapter 12 and begin reading in verse 12. It says, The next day when the large crowd that had come to the festival, and this is speaking of the Passover festival, uh, they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him. They, they kept shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord the king of Israel. Jesus found a donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. So we see, first of all, this morning that Jesus came as a king, but he came as a different kind of king. He arrived as a, a king that was ushering in a new kingdom. It was a contrast to the, the kingdom of the world or the kingdoms of the world. He was bringing in the kingdom of God, and he did so in a way that, that may have been a bit surprising to those who were there. Now, just to, to think about the context, let's begin by putting ourselves in that time period. Remember that the nation of Israel, they, they, were, they were under the rule of who? Do you remember it was the, it was the Roman Empire that was, that was over them? And, and they longed for independence. They wanted to, be, they wanted to have their, 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 own, uh, their own rule in, in their land. They didn't want others coming in from the outside to rule over them. So they, they wanted independence. But it was also, uh, according to this text, a time of a festival. And it was the Passover festival. And, and think about what, what that brought to mind. They were, they were remembering how their ancestors had at one time been in slavery, in bondage, to the Egyptians. And they, they were thinking back to the Pharaoh and they were thinking back to Moses. And do you remember what Moses said on behalf of God to the Pharaoh? He said, let my people go, right? So there they are in this Passover festival time, thinking back and, and, and recognizing the, the rule of, of the Romans. But then they also had just heard about this Galilean teacher, this one who had raised someone from the dead. They'd heard about Lazarus. And so they're beginning to put the pieces together that, that maybe this miracle-working Galilean would come and be that deliverer. If he can work miracles, maybe he could help them to overthrow the Romans. Now, the crowd was crying out, 
the words Hosanna. Hosanna is a, is a phrase that means save us. And they were quoting uh, from Psalm 118, a messianic psalm. And then they were, they were also waving something in the streets. Did you pick up that part? They were waving these palm branches. And these, uh, these palm branches were, were really a sign of, of revolution. It had just been uh, a couple centuries before that, that the Greeks had, had, uh, had been uh, overthrown out of Israel, the Maccabean revolt. And so, so palms were the symbol. They were the, the symbol of that revolution. They were even put on some of the coinage that, 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 that would be circulated in that day. And so, so all of these pieces are coming together. It's Passover. The Romans are here. We have this miracle worker that's, that's coming, and lo and behold, how is he coming? He's riding on a donkey. And the people knew what Zechariah 9 had to say, or even Genesis 49. There's a couple of, of words of prophecy. Now, Zechariah 9 is what's quoted here in what we just read. And, and that is that Jesus was, was saying to them, I am coming on the donkey. Yes, I am fulfilling that messianic prophecy. And so there's a lot of enthusiasm that's building. But let's just think for a moment about the type of Messiah they were looking for. They were probably looking for a Messiah that would, that would wield a sword, right? That would call them to arms. And yet he comes, he comes on the back of a donkey and he's coming, ushering in a, a kingdom that is not of this world. Now, some might say, did he come in weakness? And I would say, I don't think it was weakness. Uh, gentleness, yes, but weakness, no. Because what was he going to do? He was going to go face to face with the religious leaders during the Holy Week. He was going to come to a point this week where, where he would be arrested and he would go to the cross and he would lay down his life. That certainly wasn't weakness. That was courage and strength. And then on Resurrection Sunday, what would he do? He would rise from the grave again. Power over death itself. So yes, when we think about his kingdom and when we think about him as a king, it's a different kind of kingdom because he was a different kind of king and he was bringing in something that would be further understood as the week would unfold. Before we move further, though, I want to point out verse 15 because I think it's interesting that out of this prophecy from Zechariah, the people are addressed as daughter this familial language that he's referencing, this, this relationship that God has a people of his own. He's not speaking to them as subjects, as another king would, but instead as, as family. And it just demonstrates the love that God has for his own. But as we also read through this passage, and we see that the people were a bit confused about the type of Messiah he would be, and, and as we read, even the disciples didn't fully understand at this point the type of Messiah he would be. Is there a word of application there for us today? Do we still find examples of people who try to redefine Jesus, who try to, who try to realign what, what they think he should be about into, into their own agendas or their own thoughts? You see, that's that's part of the challenge that, that, that we have to recognize is that, that he's come on his own terms. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the King of Kings. And for us to understand his terms and align ourselves under his authority, not the other way around. And so I think there's a, a, a Palm Sunday application there for us as well. 
Well, as we continue to think about his identity, I'd like for us to, to move to a little later in the week. Let's, let's go to Thursday. And we'll look at it uh, not from, from John's account. Let's look over at Mark's account. And uh, we know that each of the Gospels give description of the Holy Week. And some of them have, have different points that are, that are emphasized. But I'd like for us to look at, at Mark 14 because this is an account in which later in the week Jesus would get with his disciples for the last time, the last supper. And, and if, we, if we look at what is taking place in this passage, I think it will give us greater insight and appreciation for the Lord's Supper that we'll be receiving together in just a few minutes. Well, let's look at Mark 14. And uh, just to, to put this in perspective, this is all happening the day before Jesus would go to the cross. So this is some of the, the final experiences and teaching that, that he would give. And, uh, and then the very next day, he would go to the cross. So let's pick up in Mark chapter 14. Let's uh, begin in verse 12 and read through verse 26. It says, On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrifice the Passover lamb. So just to put it into context, on Sunday, as they're all coming into Jerusalem, they're preparing for this meal. They're preparing for this day. And, and you would have heard lambs all across the area because everyone would have had their lamb that would have been used for, uh, for sacrifice uh, and for the Passover. And it's in this occasion that his disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it? So he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house. The teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. So the disciples went out, entered the city, and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Verse 17. When evening came, he arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. For the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man by whom... The Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Verse 22. As they were eating, he took bread, blessed, and broke it, gave it to them, and said, Take, take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. We see, secondly, that an ancient meal is remembered. This meal of the Passover. Passover was an annual meal. It was a time in which the people of Israel would, would reflect back on the most important event that had happened in their history to that point in time. 
Again, going back to the days in which they were in slavery in Egypt. They would have been under the Pharaoh. And it was in that time that God had told through Moses to the Pharaoh, let my people go. And and on some occasions, it looked like the Pharaoh was going to cooperate. But what typically happened? He would change his mind. And he he wanted to keep them there, use them as as slave labor. And so, so God decided that he would bring plagues on the land as a way to, to punish the Pharaoh and punish Egypt for, for keeping his people there. And it was the tenth and final plague, which was the worst one of all. It was the one in which, in which the people were called to, to, to have a sacrificial lamb and take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost of the home and that God would send a death angel and that the firstborn of every family would die unless... They had the blood over the doorposts. There had been a sacrifice that had been made. Then the angel would do what? Pass over that home. And so that's what Passover is all about. That's what, when they gathered for that meal, they were reflecting back on how God had brought them out of captivity, how he had brought them out of bondage, how he had led them miraculously across the Red Sea and into the desert and provided for them things like manna, and water, and all that was needed until they would reach the promised land. So, so this is what they were celebrating. This meal was given to the Israelites to remind them of God's deliverance. Now, the name of the meal is called a Seder meal, and maybe you've participated in a, in a meal that's, that's, uh, that's like this. A Seder meal, Seder means order, and it means that there's a particular order in which the meal is to be eaten, And there are particular elements that are to be a part of the plate. And each element has has meaning. It has representation uh, there. In fact, they they eat bitter herbs by dipping the herbs in salt water. And it reminds them of of their tears, the the bitterness of living under slavery. They eat eat a a piece of bread that is unleavened. It's what, what is now called matzah bread. And, and it reminds them that they were in such a hurry to leave Egypt that they didn't have time for the bread to rise. That they just, they baked it, it was unleavened, it didn't rise. And, and, and even, even that, that ceremony, that, that meal would continue to utilize that type of, of unleavened bread. Now, think about today, in a moment, when we eat a little piece of bread that's, that's in this package, it, again, is unleavened. Now, we take on an additional meaning with that, thinking that Jesus, this represents his body, that he, of course, had no sin, and that, that the Bible sometimes use, uses leaven as a, as a symbol of sin. And so we have an additional symbol with the unleavened bread, meaning that we understand that Jesus lived a sinless life. And so my point is, as they had this meal, they would have a particular plate in front of them. Yes, lamb and all the other elements of that meal, and each would have its own significance. As we think about the Passover meal, though, I don't want us to just think about what happened in the days of Egypt, because that Passover meal was commemorated year after year, because it also had another element. They were to be using that meal to remind themselves that another deliverer would someday come, the one they referred to as the Messiah. And so, yes, they looked back and they remembered the deliverer Moses, but they were also looking forward to another deliverer, 
the one who was the Messiah, who would again deliver them, but this time not from the oppression of the Egyptian, Pharaoh, but this time from the bondage of sin. And so that's, that's the context that we see here in Mark 14 as they get ready to eat the Passover meal. Well, as we, uh, as we read uh, there in, in, uh, in Mark, we, uh, we, we read all the way through verse 26. And as we read that, uh, we saw that, that there was also in this passage uh, the, the, the context of a covenant. And so, so that's the, the, the third point that I want us to see today is that there is a new covenant that's being established. We, we recognize that there was an old covenant of the, uh, of, of the days of Israel, but this would be a new covenant that would be established. Now, as we read these verses, I know that for many of us, it's probably familiar uh, as we read about someone betraying Jesus. That as soon as we were reading that and, and Jesus says, someone's going to betray me, it's going to be one of you, we're all immediately thinking of the rest of the story, aren't we? We're thinking about Judas. But, but take a minute and put yourself in their shoes, or, or their sandals, if you will. Try to think about what that would have been like if you were at the table that night. And they said, and, and, and they heard Jesus say, one of you will betray me. The passage we read said that it was distressing to them. And that they, they looked around, they said, surely it's, it's not I, right? It, it would be kind of like if we were at a family dinner on a holiday. Just picture what that would look like for your family. You have, you have a big table and all the family members present there. You're celebrating a holiday and maybe dad or grandpa stands up and, and says, I've got an announcement to make. I received a letter in the mail this week that was a death threat. What would that feel like to you? What, 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 what kind of emotion would that stir around the table? I mean, there would be shock, right? Dad, Dad's got a death threat. Grandpa's got a death threat. Well, what if he continued by saying, and the letter was signed by someone seated at this table? Yeah, the shock would turn to what? Horror, right? Who, who is it? Who, who among our family would, would, would give a death threat to, to Grandpa or to Dad? Well, well that, that, that was the scene in the upper room that night. They, 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 were, they were horrified that one of them would be a betrayer of Jesus. Now, we automatically think of, of Judas, but as we keep reading the chapter, in fact, let's look back at verse 27. We stopped at verse 26, but verse 27 says this, then Jesus said to them, all of you will fall away. Now think about later in the week when Jesus is arrested and he goes to trial, where do we find the disciples? <laughs> scattered, right? I mean, they're nowhere to be found. And in fact, you can find one like, like Peter. And what's he doing? He's at the fire denying that he even knows Christ. So, so yeah, for the most part, there's, there's an exception here and there. But for the most part, the disciples did fall away. They were nowhere to be found. What we see here is the weakness of the disciples. We see that they are not perfect people. They struggled. They were weak. And they were in need of a Savior. And so what I think that means for us today, as we come to the Lord's table, and as we receive these elements, we are mindful of the fact that it's a meal for us, because we have sinned. We have fallen short. 
There are times that we've not, that we've not done what we were to do, and just like these who fell away. It's not a meal for the pious. It's not a meal for the self-righteous. I think it's interesting. The Last Supper wasn't Jesus with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, was it? It was him with his disciples, and they weren't perfect people, that's for sure. But, but he was using that meal as a, as a vantage point for them to see their need for a Savior. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus said it like this, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Now, it's interesting that when he came in to town on Palm Sunday, that the people were crying out, Hosanna, save us. And here he's saying, I came to save. But notice the contrast from the kind of salvation that they were longing for, the temporal, political salvation, and the eternal salvation that Christ was offering by dealing with the greatest bondage, the greatest threat to a soul, which of course is sin. He came to seek and save the lost. And for you and me, that's good news. And that's why we can approach these elements with a recognition that he laid down his life for our sin. God's love and grace is magnified in this meal. Again, we noted earlier that the Passover meal was done in a particular order. And if you look down to verse 22, you get to the point in the meal where the host of the event would stand up and typically make some statements. And one of them would be that the host would pick up the bread and say, this is the bread of our affliction. And they would be reminded of what? Slavery in the days of Egypt. They would be reminded of Pharaoh. They'd be reminded of all that happened in their days of affliction. And, and, and yet, when Jesus, the host of this meal, stood up, he didn't hold up the bread and say, this is the bread of our affliction. He said something totally different. What did he say? This is my body. And if you were the disciples there that, that, that night, you would have looked up and said, wait, wait, wait a minute, that's not how it's supposed to go. Typically, we say this. But Jesus had another statement because he was fulfilling the ancient meal. He was bringing new significance to the meal. And in fact, they didn't understand it that night. But as the next few days unfolded, they would see that, yes, he was bringing, he was bringing new meaning, additional meaning to this ancient meal. He is saying, this is the bread of my affliction. I'm going to take the affliction upon myself, my body. It's going to be me that, that takes the affliction. It's the bread of my suffering. Because I'm about to lead the ultimate exodus and bring you out of the ultimate deliverance from bondage once for all. That's what Jesus is saying. Once this meal is observed, no longer will they just be thinking of slavery to Pharaoh. No longer will they just be thinking of the deliverer Moses. There's now a better deliverer. There's a greater deliverer, and that is Jesus Christ. He came to deliver this world from the bondage of sin. It would be through his affliction, his death, and as we will celebrate next week, his resurrection. He's saying, I am the ultimate Moses. I'm leading the ultimate exodus, and this for you will be the ultimate suffering to provide what? The ultimate salvation.
More than what the crowd was thinking about when they used that word, Hosanna. Well, as we see this week unfold, they will understand more and more about what it's about. But for us, we get to look at this meal. And now we can say, yes, it's a Passover meal. But it's now also a Lord's Supper. Because we don't just think about what happened in the ancient times of the Israelites in Egypt. We now think of the times in which Jesus went to his disciples and explained the real type of kingdom that he was ushering in. Notice in verse 23 that it says Jesus took the cup. He held it in his hands and it says he gave thanks. In just a minute, we're going we're gonna to follow his example. And we're going to give thanks for these elements. We're going we're gonna to re- reflect on what they mean. And we're going to give thanks to God uh, for for, for why they have the meaning that they have. If you, if you look at this in the Greek, this, this phrase, give thanks or gave thanks, comes from the word efkaristo. And it is still a word that's used today when our family lived in Greece. Oftentimes, the, uh, the Koine Greek, the ancient Greek, and the modern Greek can, can be very different. But this is one of those cases where it was used in Koine Greek and it's still in use today. If, uh, if you were wanting to express thanks to someone, you would just simply say, Efkaristo, you're saying thank you. Now, the etymology or the, the, the meaning of, of the word is it's a compound word. In fact, if you, if you look at it, the, the prefix there, E-U, means, means good. And so if you've, if you've attended a funeral and you've, and you've heard someone give a eulogy, what are they doing? They're giving a good word about the deceased. Well, this is... Uh, this is with a different ending, uh, it has kadis or kadis, which, which means grace. And so, so you're giving, you're, you're, you're expressing that this grace is good. And it's, it's, it's gratitude. And that's what, that, that's what sometimes when you, when you hear the Lord's Supper referred to as the Eucharist. We don't typically do that in, in, uh, in, in, our, in our tradition. Usually it's communion or Lord's Supper. But, but you can see from, from this word why it is called that. In some, in some uh, uh, traditions, it's because of this idea of giving thanks for the grace that God has given. Well, as we, as we think about the bread, we, we see that Jesus says, this is my body. But we also want to think about the cup because he says, this is my blood. And he uses the word covenant. And that, that's important because God had a covenant with the people of Israel. Now, he always kept his side of the covenant, didn't he? Now, what about the people of Israel? Were they always faithful? We know they weren't. They, were, they, they ebbed and flowed. There were times that they were. There were times that, that, they, that they weren't. Um, but God was always faithful to his covenant. But if we were to read this account in Luke, there's another word that's been inserted that I think is important. Luke chapter 22 Verse 20, as a cross-reference says, in the same way he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Did you catch those words, new covenant? There there was an old covenant with the people of Israel, but now there's a, a new covenant, a covenant through Christ that would be for all who would receive him. Under the old covenant, there was a sacrificial system. And how did that system work? An animal was brought in. It was sacrificed. And did it happen just once? No. Over and over and over again. 
Each of these holidays, each of these sin offerings, each of these Passovers, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, all of these sacrifices. But in the New Covenant, how many sacrifices? Just one. We read about it in the book of Hebrews. It's once, one sacrifice that applies to all. All who will receive him. All who will come to him for forgiveness can have his sacrifice cover their sin. That's the new covenant. It's a better covenant. And it's his sacrifice that would be at one time for all who would believe. So Jesus is now declaring that the same God who came and worked under the old covenant to set the people free in the Exodus was now at work once again in their presence with a new covenant. And this time it would be through his son who would also be the lamb of God. I mention that because the centerpiece, the focus of the Passover was the sacrificial lamb. But as we read through these passages, we're not getting much detail about the lamb, are we? It's as if Jesus is talking about the bread and he's talking about the cup because he's saying the lamb is here with you. I am the lamb. And I am going to be sacrificed. When? That very next day. That very next day on Friday, when all of the lambs for Passover would be sacrificed, it would this time be the Lamb of God laying down his life. And from that time forward, as we come to the Lord's table, we reflect upon his sacrifice and his suffering. When we hold the cup, we think about the nature of God as being one who forgives because it's a meal for sinners. We see his nature as a God who provides because he gives exactly what is needed for the penalty and the deliverance from sin. He's a God who forgives. A few years ago, I was reading, came across an article somewhere about some famous uh, cups that had been found almost like archaeological discoveries in Ireland. And a couple of years ago, I shared, shared with you this, the, this first cup. It, was, it was come to be, has come to be known as the, the Gindestrup Cauldron. And it, it goes back to B.C. days. And it was, it was found by, by someone who was working in a peat bog in Ireland. Just came across this, this, uh, this, this cauldron, this cup. And uh, they cleaned it up, and they realized that it went back to, to a, a pagan era. It went back to a, to a pagan worship service. And that there was even on the, on the perimeter, the, the outside of this vessel, there were images of pagan deities. And, and one of those deities is referred to as a cook god, which I know sounds a little strange, but it meant that, that this deity was holding people, humans, and was about to cook them, For the purpose of doing what? Eating them. Right. Yeah. That's right. You can kind of see the image there. And anytime someone would be in this worship environment, they would be reminded that, that they are worshiping a God who devours people. And if you look back through time, you can find certainly examples of pagan rituals where human sacrifice and even child sacrifice would happen in such a way as to appease the gods. We, we know of that. Well, here's an example of this one. 
And as you would hold that cup in your hands, you would be mindful that you are worshiping a God that devours. But another cup was also discovered in Ireland, not not in a peat bog, but this time, as, as history would tell it, it was a boy digging for potatoes in Ireland. I know. And he comes across an object in the ground, and it's this, after it was cleaned up, this beautiful chalice. And, and as it was cleaned up, they began to realize that, that this, this was really an incredible vessel. And it was, it was a few hundred years, uh, actually about 700 years after the time in which, in which the gospel came to Ireland. And so it was very likely a chalice that was used for the Lord's Supper. As they, as, they, as they cleaned it up and looked at it, they realized it was very valuable. There's about 250 pieces. There's gold, there's silver, there's precious gems. But there's also a band of names that have been inscribed around the outside. And it's 12 names. Now, what 12 names do you think that might be? Yeah, I was thinking the disciples too. It's really 11 disciples and Paul. Now, I don't know why Matthias wasn't, wasn't put in there. But it was 11 disciples, so not Judas, with, with Paul. And, and there's all of this imagery on the outside of the cup, both with the number 12, thinking of disciples, but also of crosses that are emblazoned all around that vessel. And so just think about that as you, as you, as you think uh, about the symbols of this cup. It's not a pagan god holding on to people that are about to be devoured, but instead it's a god who says, I lay down my life for you. And as we come and hold this cup and we reflect upon the elements that we are going to receive, we think about a God, not that devours, but a God who lays down his life for his own. The symbolism of the Lord's Supper is for us to remember his, his body and to remember the new covenant of his blood that is offered to each of us. So with that in mind, I pray that we today can reflect upon the price that was paid. I know it's not Good Friday yet. We'll have that day later in the week. But think about what Christ did. Think about the fact that he willfully laid his life down so that we could be delivered from sin. I'd like for us to take a moment, and you, I hope, have already received, picked up the elements. We'll take them together. Uh, But before we do, I think we should follow the example of our Lord. Because before he received these, he gave thanks. So let's bow together and do that. And I would just ask, why don't you go ahead and give a word of thanks to the Lord? Thank him for his sacrifice. Thank him for the life that you've received in him. Thank him that you are considered part of his family. Maybe it's a time of reflection. Maybe even a word of confession. But before we receive these elements together, let's take time to pray.